2: Mmm. Mm-hmm. 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 what's that
3: disgusting noise?
2: That's just me doing my job in the peer-to-peer economy. I'm a team member for Cramit. Cramit. It's a wee commerce platform for people who don't have time to eat. I eat their food for them. Actually, this client has really bad reflux, but he wanted a spicy Mexican meal washed down with coffee, so I'm polishing it off for him.
4: What is that animal?
2: Oh, I couldn't keep up with all the work, so I subcontracted with a beaver. He has to eat all the time anyway. Don't you, Norbert?
4: But this is unsustainable. If you eat people's food, they're still going to
3: have to eat anyway.
2: Greg, you're always picking my ideas apart. I don't need that anymore. Why not? Because I use Pick My Ideas Apart, a platform that harnesses the excess capacity of highly critical people. I'm paying Spunky here 15 bucks an hour. I can't believe you don't see how stupid this enterprise is. Within three weeks, you'll weigh 400 pounds and fall over dead, reeking of undigested jalapeno.
3: That used to be my job. I was such an idiot not to see this coming.
2: Well, you know, if you feel really bad, you can hire somebody from Uptalk to come over and say nice things about you. Or go straight to air RNG. That's kind of soft core prostitution. It's the sharing economy, Greg. The possibilities are endless. And now he makes two hundred dollars a week pretending to be somebody's dog, Colin McEnroe.
5: Yeah, actually, there's a platform called Fake My Pet. <laughs> Beaver is deleting there. There's a uh, platform called Fake My Pet. It's for people that they want dogs, but they can't have something as dependent as a dog in their life. So you know, I'm their dog, but I can take care of myself more or less. So. I get $12 an hour. It's not bad. So, no, none of those things actually exist, but a lot of things like that really do exist. Um, And and there are several different names for what we'll be talking about here, and and they all kind of overlap with one another. And you heard them all, I think, in the intro, the sharing economy or peer-to-peer businesses or e-commerce. It's all more or less the same thing. And whatever it is, it's really big, um, and it really does change people's lives. 56% of Airbnb hosts in San Francisco say the service helps them pay their rent. Uh, The average Relay Rides member makes an extra $250 a month, and Forbes estimates the revenue people will earn from this kind of thing, from this sharing economy, will surpass $3.5 billion this year with a growth rate of 25%. Now, that also depends a lot on what you count as parts of that sharing economy, and we'll be talking about that today as well. Later in the show, we'll be talking about what happens when these businesses, which kind of start up on essentially a guerrilla footing, that's the G-U-E-R kind of footing. Uh, what happens when the government gets interested in them, as the government tends to do? You know? Also what happens when they begin to horizontally and vertically integrate? Uh, and start to look more like the kinds of businesses that they originally existed as an alternative to, if that syntax makes any sense at all. Let me tell you who's here. Billy Howard is with us, founder of the communications consulting uh, firm Brandthropology, uh, author of WeCommerce, How to Create, Collaborate, and Succeed in the Sharing Economy. Jeremiah Aoyang, founder of crowd companies, as well as a lecturer and business industry analyst. Uh, they're both with us here for this first segment. So, uh, Billy Howard, I'm going to have you get us started. Um, so, I did my best, I did my level best to describe what it is we're talking about, sharing economy, collaborative economy, we economy, peer-to-peer. Maybe you can do a better job. What, it is, what is it that we're really talking about?
0: Uh, well, I think you did a good setup, but just to give a little more background and insight, you know, in the post-2008 world, uh, you know, we, we really have experienced since that financial meltdown a global reset. Uh, global reset button was was pushed, and and we've entered one of the most transformative periods in history, uh, where nothing will ever quite be the same again. And at the foundation of that is this idea that the power has shifted from the few to the uh, to the many. And you have the democratizing power of technology that has really facilitated this idea of a peer to peer economy that is centered on the idea of trust. Trust between individuals as trust in big business and government, uh, was lost in, in a significant way, uh, around the financial crisis. And I think that what you're seeing is over the last several years is this momentum pick up around collaborative, uh commerce models that really uh center around ecosystems that benefit the businesses themselves the communities um that they serve as well as the consumer So uh, I think that's a really good way, perhaps, of uh, setting it
5: up. Okay, and I'm not quite sure I buy uh, that the uh, power has shifted from the few to the many. I think the few are still doing pretty well, but we can come back to that. I think it's a really interesting question. But rather than traffic and abstractions, you know, we sort of mentioned some of the superstars uh, who maybe even have outgrown the label a little bit. We'll talk about that as well. But whether it's Etsy or eBay or Lyft or Uber or Airbnb, those are sort of the superstars. But then bubbling up under uh, Billy Howard are all... All these uh, interesting new upstarts. Um, I, I thought maybe we could pick one. I know you're kind of interested in something called Nimber right now. So explain what Nimber is.
0: Nimber is is an example of where the sharing economy is headed, which is taking a look at different pockets of opportunity, different niches in the economy that can benefit from the, from models that are centered around collaboration. Nimber is a company that has found a way to exploit unused space. Uh, in transportation systems to kind of reimagine what courier services at a reasonable cost can look like. And uh, they're doing extremely well. And I think that as we move into 2016, we're going to see less duplication by category, meaning Uber, Lyft, you know, very much doing the same thing, and more and more companies trying to find these new pockets of opportunity for growth.
5: Yeah, so just to sort of um, flesh that out a little bit, so I've got a classical guitar that needs to get from Birmingham, England to London. Uh, I don't really feel like entrusting it to just a, any old buddy, but but and it has to get there at a certain time, but you're going there anyway, so we work out a thing uh, on Nimber where, first of all, we establish that you're a relatively trustworthy person, that I can give my Classical guitar, too, and you'll get it to London in the assigned time. That's basically Nimber, right? Yep, that's a great way of describing it. Um, so once again, that's sort of um, people selling some excess capacity. They got, they're they going there anyway. They've got room in their car, uh, so they're they're basically going to sell it, uh, presumably on the cheap. You're going to get a bargain. Might might even get a better deal than you'll get from FedEx for shipping your guitar under the same circumstances. Jeremiah, Jeremiah Aoyang, this sometimes is called the sharing economy, but uh, it looks like for the most part it really isn't really so much about sharing as it is, about what I just described, I'm, I have excess capacity, you have a need, we work out a deal.
6: That's right. I think sharing is a misnomer. I don't actually use that term. It looks more like a collaborative model, or in many cases this is peer-to-peer commerce where people are getting what they need from each other using these simple technologies, and they're almost in 99% of the transactions, they're exchanging dollars or yuan or, or yen or whatever it is. It's usually not like sharing like I'm gifting. But certainly the tenets are true, that people are activating idle resources around them, whether that be a spare bedroom in their house or an extra seat in their car or extra time that they have and they're unlocking these things using mobile devices in most cases and these systems have reputation aspects in them so you can identify how a stranger could become a trusted resource then you can activate that resource which is often in a local area but not always so those are some of the general tenets of this space
5: so one of the questions that we i have for both of you but jeremiah i'm gonna stay with you for a second here on this is are we in fact on the dawn of a new era of peer-to-peer commerce or are we just watching companies start up and then grow up into the very things that they presumably reviled in the first place? I mean, you look at something like Airbnb, which launched in 2014, a rebranding effort as kind of a global travel and travel and hospitality company. Uh, we absolutely know that any time you rebrand, that means you've lost your moral and cognitive compass. I'm just kidding. We're rebranding here right now. Um, but, um, but no, I mean, it's the kind of thing a big company does, right? And Airbnb is a big company now. So so, does it lose its innocence uh, when it becomes something like that?
6: Well, you know, there was a, just looking back in the last five, ten years, the media companies were disrupted by Facebook and Twitter, who are now huge behemoths. So, this is a, a typical pattern that you see that coming out of the tech space where the disruptor becomes a large company. Um, just for some context, these startups have raised a tremendous amount of money, mostly from the one percenters, the investors, the venture capitalists in Wall Street. They've raised a whopping $27 billion. Uh, just for context, social networks like Facebook and Twitter have raised around $7 billion over the course of time. Now, these investors are going to want their money back, which means there's going to be monetization that's going to have to happen. And so these are going to turn into large corporate entities, many of them that will be publicly traded. So I, I definitely think that this is – a market owned by the 1%, or those that have created the startups will become the 1%. Well, that Billy
5: happens. Billy Howard, do you want to push back at that at all? I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, it could be like that, or there could be a new sun coming up over the horizon
0: yeah i feel that it's a new economic infrastructure that benefits everyone i don't think that it benefits just the one percent i think it benefits big companies like uh you know a great example is absolute uh who has made uh the opportunity available to entrepreneurs on a local level to create local distilleries that ladder up to the absolute brand but have a small batch flavor that's something that you never would see before so that's opening up uh, opportunities for entrepreneurialism on a hyper-local level, which I think is extremely significant to the rebounding growth of our economy. You you also, yes, you have these major companies coming out of the sharing economy that are getting bigger and bigger, but I don't necessarily think that size is, is a deterrent to doing something that's innovative, uh, particularly as these companies are very much agile and ahead of the game and constantly disrupting themselves and spotting challenges, uh, uh, you know, in advance and and fighting them or facing them with strategies that are aligned for future growth. I think the Airbnb Community Compact that was uh, announced a a couple of weeks ago where they are getting ahead of regulatory hurdles that are being put in their way uh, is a great example of looking at how these companies, uh, big or small, are fundamentally helping us to uh, change uh, society as we know it. Um say a little bit
5: more about what Airbnb is doing in terms of getting ahead of regulatory hurdles because people don't necessarily know about that.
0: Yeah, I mean I I think that the historical debate or the historical paradigm that's always been a challenge is that we we it, you know regulation never keeps pace with innovation and I think the speed at which this economy is moving is potentially pressing for changes to occur to uh hopefully change that and Airbnb coming out with a community compact, which is basically a manifesto that uh, aims to align them better with the local government that they're having challenges, uh, you know, making peace with, is demonstrates that they don't just want to – this is a new era of business that doesn't want to steamroll into environments and have a sole uh, eye on profit. I think they're trying to, to leverage their businesses to do things – to society that are purposeful and beneficial to us all. And, and creating a compact that puts the, you know, a set of guidelines or a set of aspirations in place specifically designed to show how they will aim to work better with the local communities they serve and the governments that serve them, to me is a, is a, is a pretty good sign, in my opinion, of some optimism on the horizon.
5: So Jeremy, another thing that Airbnb is doing is besides rebranding and besides uh, this compact, uh, and and I don't mean to pick on them, we could pick on another company just as easily, but they're they're growing really fast and they're testing a variety of new sharing products, ranging from cleaning services to new key exchange processes to their own version of ride sharing. So now that's starting to look like vertical integration as well as horizontal integration. I mean, I think their goal really is, you know, that eventually they'll sort of be it—that VRBO and HomeAway and all that stuff—they'll. Uh, kind of be it in this market. Um, and, but let's talk about the vertical part of this for a second. Once again, you know these, these kind of niche businesses that then want to go vertical and do a lot of other things, um, you, you sort of wonder how easy it's going to be for them to hang on to the vision and cachet that, that they initially had.
6: Well, in the core of it, they were about room sharing, and so that will be the core thing that people go to do is to become a traveler. But they're extending into every aspect of hospitality services uh, from the transportation, mobility, food, cleaning, all the things that you need on both sides of the host and the guest as well. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You see that hotels do that as well. But there's other competitors in the space as well. There is One Fine Stay who has taken investment from Hyatt. So building off the idea that traditional companies are starting to participate and integrate with these things, Hyatt is allowing their own customers uh, to actually use uh, the lobbies if they're also staying at a One Fine Stay local property. So we're seeing that hotels are not standing by the wayside to allow Airbnb just to snap up the entire market. So many folks are getting involved.
5: Oh, oh, by the way, I think I called you Jeremy. It's Jeremiah, obviously. Sorry about that. Um, And um, so, Billy, I want to come back here. I think the other thing we're not talking about quite yet uh, is sort of how people piece this together, not as consumers, but as providers. And I gather from my reading there are people who are basically trying to assemble I don't know, career might not be the right word, but some Airbnb and then maybe one of the ride services and then some TaskRabbit, which is one of the many services that allow you basically to, um, to market your willingness to, to do something that somebody else doesn't want to do, um, and, and trying really to, to sort of fit into the gig economy through these kinds of platforms. Do we know how well that's working out?
0: Well, I think that the trend is on the upward spiral from what, you know, uh, the news tells us and from where, you know, I think that the data is pointing. I don't remember the exact statistic, but it said something along the lines that we'll have a significant uh, jump in a freelance economy, a telecommuting economy, one that is centered more on, you know, the employee, if you will, being in control as opposed to the employer, which – to ladder back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation, that's a perfect example of where I think that the many have uh, more significant power over the few than ever before. You used to be beholden to one job or two jobs or three jobs for your career, but you answered to your employer and you didn't really have the flexibility to work on your own terms and potentially pursue passions of yours on the side or serve your family or do whatever it is that you want to do. And I think that that's only something that we're going to continue to see more of as we move uh, ahead
5: although jeremy not to make you uh, mr grumpy cat about this but uh, jeremiah excuse me not to make you mr grumpy cat about this but um it, it, oh, the, there's another side to that, which is that these companies can change the dynamics pretty easily, too. Uber can put in a new formula. TaskRabbit recently, I think, introduced a new algorithm so that the match between Rabbit and client became different, more problematic, not what people were used to, not what people were counting on. And it isn't like you can even go into work that day and say to your bosses, what the hell is going on here? I'm not getting the same jobs that I used to get. Um, this is all being done in a remote location. I would assume, Jeremiah Aoyang, that the the plight of people who are trying to work under these systems is a little bit precarious.
6: We conducted research and interviewed, surveyed over 50,000 people in North America on why they use these services. And the main reason is for convenience and then also value. They can work whenever they want, which is a big plus, and value. They make money when they need to. Uh, Now, it's true that the technology platforms have a lot of power over the workforce. However... They have competitors as well, and they need to make their workers happy or their partners, as they might call it, because there's always another competitor waiting in the wings. When I take rides on a Lyft or Uber, most of the time the drivers have both of the apps on. They don't even know who, which app is actually picking up. They're going to go to whichever has the best market provider for, their, for the driver. So they have competition too.
5: Um, and, Jeremiah, maybe you can say also a little bit about, is conven- We've sort of you've sort of alluded to this in terms of, companies like Hyatt may be putting some money into this, but conventional business or whatever we call the way capitalism formally operated, um, to, are they adopting and it would seem to me to make sense to at least pull some of the ideas that seem most opportunistic and workable out of this formula and make it part of your, uh, I mean, in some ways, I guess you could sort of say, well, anyway, you, you go ahead and talk about that.
6: Yeah, this is my area specialty. This is exactly what my company focuses on. But essentially, corporations, big companies, are doing three things. One, they're actually activating the crowd to provide on-demand services, like deliver things from different grocery stores like Whole Foods using Instacart. Or two, big companies are launching their own marketplaces of used goods, like Patagonia. And even Cisco enables their own customers to buy and sell their big, gigantic routers and Wi-Fi equipment. And the third thing is they're enabling their own crowd to crowdfund or actually create products along with them. I like that absolute example. So they're working with the crowd to design new products. So big traditional companies are changing their business models to adapt to this sharing collaborative market
5: um some of the sharing collaborative market jeremiah i would imagine would be a little bit threatening to um conventional capitalism for example i think on your site there's even a link to Yertle.com. if i understand Yertle, uh, it's um it's kind of cashless right i mean it's a it's a way in which i get rid of my clothes that i don't want anymore and then i sort of get some kind of substitute uh tender which i can use somewhere down the line to maybe buy some other stuff and everything that seems like you're really you know, striking is driving a stake right in the heart of Kohl's. Or pick Anti-capitalism.
6: Yeah. But what's interesting is Yertle, uh, their founder, Andy Rubin, is actually a former chief strategy officer of Walmart. So he understands capitalism very well. And they've even taken partnership and have worked with uh, Patagonia and even taken some investment from groups like that. So they understand they want to work with big, large companies that understand that people want to be sustainable about their lifestyles. So there, it's not or or versus. This is and.
5: Um Billy, does it look that way to you too that the, there can be kind of um, peace in the valley that the that the peer to peer lamb can lie down with the capitalist lion?
0: Uh, I, I absolutely agree. i mean, I, I think that what we're going to see is less of a uh, distinction between traditional companies, if you will, and peer to peer sharing economy, we economy, whatever you want to call them companies because in order for any company to succeed today, there are, you know, embracing some of the critical drivers of the uh, economy we're currently in are important. One is certainly collaboration. The other is this idea of high levels of creativity and distinction. You know, if you look at Amazon going ahead and creating their own uh, crafts, uh, you know, marketplace, which is clearly designed to compete with Etsy, but also take the best of what small batch uh, is come out of the uh, sharing economy. I think that's a great example of what we're going to see as we move forward, which is potentially sharing economy companies taking a little bit of what has worked historically in business to grow and maintain scale and potentially build cultures of, of significance. And I think on the flip side, you're going to see the the same type of paradigm shift with larger companies embracing the principles that are helping to transform uh, the world we live in into their own companies. IBM is a great example of a company doing that right now.
5: Um, it seems that, Billy, that some of this stuff is pretty geo-specific, too. I went on this site called peers.org, which I thought was really great, and I would recommend anyone listening to the show, go to peers.org and then click on the Find Work thing. I guarantee you, you will find at least one business there that you could do, that there's something there in this whole map of all these different kinds of wonderful things that, that that I like, I found one that I could do, and I have almost no skills whatsoever. So, um, <laughs> um, so it's all there, but then I filtered, I filtered for my zip code, and like a third to half of the businesses went away and i suppose that's a strength in a way right that you some of these businesses exist for their markets or in limited markets or only work in bustling urban environment environments or whatever um which is both a weakness because like everybody else might want to do it but can't and in a strength in the sense that they're not going to get so out of scale that they get ridiculous
0: i, I think hyper local approaches to any kind of business are definitely taking shape Because that's what's powerful today is the ability to have accessibility to the type of things that are driving the economy and the world at large, but being able to bring it home in a way that, you know, is relatable to a specific person or geography. I think that that's why I read an interesting article the other day that, you know, as the overall publishing media newspaper industry is on the rampant decline, what interestingly is on the uptick are, you know, super localized uh, regional newspapers, because people want to be able to uh, use the creativity and customization that's driving the economy to personalize things, not only to themselves, but to the regions in which they, they live.
5: Yes, this is links back to, back to yesterday's show. Uh, Billy Howard, uh, one last question before we go to break, and uh, Jeremiah Aoyang is uh, coming back with me uh, in the next segment. We're also going to talk a little bit about what happens when government jumps in and tries to uh, regulate this stuff. But we should say that there are some businesses that exist somewhere within this peer-to-peer uh, e-commerce continuum that um, are kind of holding fast to principle. Uh, I know you like to talk about Tom's shoes, so uh, I'll throw that one at you.
0: I mean, Tom Shoes is a great example of a success for many reasons because it's not, you know, it's not just a, a mobile app. It's not it, it, it's not just, you know, collaborative commerce. It's not just, it's not a one off. It's basically a model that I think, you know, uh, embraces the best of the economy that we're living in today. And, and you know, their community outpost model, I think, is a really good way of bringing that Light, And what I mean by that is instead of creating Tom Shoes stores, they have a community outpost model that they've rolled out across the country. And what that entails is opening in specific markets uh, outposts where people in the community can come and do anything from network to perhaps watch a movie to, you know, sit outside and enjoy the sun and a cup of coffee. Oh, and by the way, there's also shoes. So that's something about it that's unique. The other thing is they're they're embracing uh, a critical component of the sharing economy, which is being purposeful, putting purpose at the center of business strategy, not just doing it as a nice uh, corporate social responsibility or charity uh, charity component. But at times, every time you you buy a pair of shoes, they give uh, you know a pair of shoes to someone in need. Um, they also have taken uh, another key component, which is bringing uh, brand experiences that are. Um, unmatchable to their target consumers, to their audience. You know, something that Tom's has done in these community outposts is bring virtual reality centers into the stores, if you will. And if you, you know, everyone knows where the first pair of shoes goes, Yeah, you know, after if you buy one pair, what happens? But what happens, you know, if you buy two pairs of shoes? And in these outposts, you can go into a virtual reality center and be transported to the hills of Peru, for example, and see that those, you know, where those shoes are going and how they're serving, uh, you know, kids or adults in need. So I, I think that, the takeaway is it's not big or small, it's not, you know, mobile, it's not collaborative. It's really a new approach to business that's purposeful and, you know, really has the best interest of all at heart.
5: All right. Billy Howard, founder of the communications consulting firm Branthropology, author of WeCommerce, How to Create, Collaborate and Succeed in the Sharing Economy. Thanks for being with us. Jeremiah Aoyang and I are coming back after this with some other guests to talk about some other wrinkles in this fascinating cloth.
3: But I just- what it takes to claim. Uber to my place. 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 Uber to
0: my place. Uber to my place. To my place. I'm feeling kind of faded. I probably shouldn't drive. Hope that you can make it.
5: All right. We're back. We're talking about peer-to-peer business, the sharing economy, although we think that's maybe kind of a misnomer. We'll come right back to that in two seconds. Uh, otherwise known as WeCommerce. Uh, we actually have a tweet from Randall. Uh, Randall is saying, uh, it's really, is it really sharing if they're making money? And lots of it, maybe call it the functioning properly economy. Well, Jeremiah Jeremiah Aoyang, one of our guests and the founder of Crowd Companies, as well as a lecturer and business industry analyst, has already kind of addressed that. Yeah, they are making money. Maybe sharing economy isn't really the right way to talk about that. Uh, But before I introduce our other guest, Jeremiah, there's another piece to to that tweet. I like the last line. He says, maybe call it the functioning properly economy. And so the the dream here is that somehow or other, what we're talking about now is a, a medicine or an antidote to what seems to be a lot of dissatisfaction among Americans with the existing economy. In a 2013 poll, 73% of Americans said they were dissatisfied with the economy. Maybe 73% would say that in any given year or era. I don't know. Uh, Lower income Americans are more financially insecure than they've been since the 1970s, with 85% of them worrying how they would pay their bills. Um, And a quarter of Americans say they don't trust the companies that they work for. Once again, I don't know how stable or unstable uh, those kinds of The statistics are. But I think there is, I think it's fair to say post 2008, there's a sense that things aren't working as well as they ought to, that um, high school diplomas and college degrees uh, aren't even worth as much in terms of human capital and earning power as maybe they used to be. People do seem to be craving some kind of Different experience. If you tell them there's another economy over that hill, they'll probably go over that hill. Um, And and I guess, you know, I I know that you sort of um, speak to both camps. Uh, And and, I mean, how much does this strike you as something that arose not only out of necessity, but out of a, a sense of unhappiness?
6: Well, there's a macro perspective and a micro. Let's look at the macro one, which you touched upon. This market did birth in 2008 in the trough of the recession. There's no question. But at the same time, there was a lot of there's population increases expanding. My father was born. There's 2 billion people on the planet. When I died, there's going to be around 10 billion people. So it's going to increase by five times within just two lifespans, which means we have no choice to, but to be efficient with our resources. And at the same time, the technological side, the iPhone and smartphones birthed at the same year. So all those things cause, this trigger for this to happen. Now it's true that out of necessity, Airbnb birth, people were going to conferences and they needed a place to stay, so the three founders opened up their actual apartment on Roush Street in SF and that triggered this. So that's the macro trend. But the question is what happens when the economy improves? Is this limited to only to a down market? And I don't think it is. So when we surveyed over 50,000 people in the U.S. and Canada, we found out that they use this mainly not because of altruistic reasons or because of sustainability reasons. It's because it's fast and cheap. For example, imagine trying to get a taxi in New York or in San Francisco in today's environment. It just doesn't seem fathomable compared to how you can just order it through an app. These services make things fast and easy to use, so they're going to sustain over the long term.
5: All right, that's a perfect segue in a way to um, uh, one of our other guests here, Matthew Mitchell, Senior Research Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he's also an adjunct professor of economics. He's the co-author of The Sharing Economy and Consumer Protection Regulation, The Case for Policy Change. Um, So um, uh, Matt, you actually write, the key contribution of the sharing economy, however, is that it has overcome market imperfections without recourse to traditional forms of regulation. Continued application of these outmoded regulatory regimes is likely to harm consumers. We argue that the internet and the rapid growth of the sharing economy alleviates the need for much of this top-down regulation. So um, given all that, I mean, there are all these explosive new things, and uh, y- both you and Jeremiah are talking about sort of how they overcome certain market imperfections. But part of that is this kind of guerrilla feeling. Uh, so what happens when government steps in and goes, well, you know, actually, you can not just do anything you want. We really have to sort of have some kind of framework for regulating
1: you. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I, I think this speaks to part of the reason why the sharing economy rose in some of the, uh, arose in some of the industries where it did. Um, if you notice, you know, of course, the taxi industry is, is one of the more heavily regulated um, local um, markets. And I think it's no surprise that the sharing economy arose there, uh, in part because the taxi regulations had so failed consumers um, you know, there is an irony with regulations which are intended to help consumers that if they erect barriers to entry um, by raising costs for getting into the business or by raising costs for getting out of the business, think how, how much your car has changed when you have to paint it a uh, certain color, bolt on all the, all the equipment, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it makes it harder to leave that industry. And so uh, what ended up happening is basically a century of taxi regulations, um made for a very uncompetitive market and so you had consumers that were sort of pent-up desire for a better product, lower price, higher quality uh, and I think that, that the sharing economy introduced a, a measure of competition there that did not exist beforehand.
5: So what you've got are things like trust. I mean, basically, there's a lot of trust involved in, in a lot of these companies. And then this sort of peer rating service, too, that I mean, ideally, if the system works pretty well, I'll know you know, whether or not I want this particular Uber car or whatever, based on other people's experiences with this particular Uber car. Those are the things sitting in place of regulation. And as you're suggesting, too, one thing we know is that the, the threat... Threshold to getting, say, a taxi medallion in New York City is like this insane thing, right? It's right. just, it is a bar to entry. I mean, almost a complete bar to entry in a way that it seems punitive. So, so what do you suggest? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, on the one hand, it seems unlikely that government's not going to want to do some kind of regulation. We're going to just talk to somebody in the government in, in two <laughs> minutes who wants to do some regulation. What's the right touch? I guess is the question.
1: Yeah. So what I would say is the right touch is the, is the variety of regulation that governs most market transactions and has governed them for centuries. And this is a regulation where it says if you're harmed, you absolutely have recourse to tort. You absolutely have, if somebody breaks a promise, you know, says that their, their drivers are all vetted and, and subject to background checks, and it turns out that they aren't and they lied. They absolutely should be held liable. Uh, if if, if uh, there's crim, criminal uh, penalties for people who um, drive recklessly or break some some um, driving laws, that's absolutely the type of regulation that should be applied. What I would say we ought to avoid, and I think uh, the economic evidence suggests that it's prudent to avoid, is the variety of regulation that preemptively spells out in great detail a business model. So that's instead, that ought to be open to experimentation because um, you know what may be optimal business uh, business model for nineteen twenty seven when New York City first imposed um, set its taxi laws is probably not going to be optimal today you know think about what how regulators might have specified how we ought to um, uh, drive cars in nineteen twelve you know they would say well of course you, everybody needs for safety reasons everybody must wear goggles, um, you know, and it could be cold, so they all have to, have to wear, um, you know, vests and, and sweaters because most of these cars are not, are not covered. Um, you know, there would be all sorts of antiquated rules if they regulated based on the state of the art uh, in 1912. Well, that's, that's essentially the way a lot of people are trying to regulate the sharing economy now, is they're saying, what is the uh, business model of Uber and Lyft that they're currently using, and let's set that down in law But the problem with that is that it doesn't leave open experimentation for new kinds of business models that are Uh, have yet to come on the scene.
5: So let me just push back at that a little bit uh, just um, because one of the questions we have to ask here in Connecticut is, what would Ralph Nader say? Because life in Connecticut is such that Ralph could come barging into my studio at any minute. (laughs) Um, And so Ralph would probably say, well, the tort system is great. I just built a museum to the tort system. That's how much I like the tort system. Uh, On the other hand, um, it's also true that if you don't have government regulating stuff, stuff gets unsafe because it's in the nature of business to cut corners. It's in the nature of business not to pose requirements, both on its providers and its users. You know, so it'll take forever to get mandatory seatbelts or whatever, unless government steps in and goes, nope, can't do it unless you do that. So does that fall into the creating a business model category, the the idea of, like, looking at everything and saying, well, you know, you can't run a dog hotel at your house unless you do X, Y, and Z, because otherwise somebody's dog's going to die and, uh, and and there'll be no redress.
1: Right. You know, uh, interestingly enough, one of my favorite Ralph Nader... Uh, articles. 1974, Ralph Nader and Mark Green um, wrote a really insightful piece on how regulation can be anti-competitive. And, you know, their assessment is, uh, in most places, regulations of rates, uh, regulation of entry, um, regulations that specify that uh, certain types of business models tend to be anti-competitive. Uh, and there was this sort of consensus, of course, in the 1970s that emerged. It was obvious That the regulations of the airline industry were anti-competitive; they were driving up prices. Um, It was obvious that they were um, trying that that, uh, businesses had captured the regulators themselves, um, simply because of the fact that businesses tend to be uh, more politically savvy than the consumers. And so, um, you know, Nader and Green had this great insight. And there used to be sort of a, a more bipartisan consensus. That uh, recognize that regulations, when they are anti-competitive, undermine the whole purpose. The whole purpose of regulation. Um, you know, there's another uh, great progressive liberal economist, Alfred Kahn, who himself was a regulator, and his um, conclusion of a half century of research um, was that, you know, where feasible, competition is a much better regulator than. Uh, command and control rules if so long as another competitor is able to easily enter the market that tends to keep um, providers on their toes
5: all right, let's go to Sean Scanlon, get him into this conversation. State representative out of Guilford, director of community affairs in the office of, uh, Hartford office of Senator Chris Murphy. So, Sean Scanlon, you've taken a very specific interest in one aspect of this peer to peer economy, and that is the sort of Uber uh, slash Lyft, uh, part of this. And, and so, um, I know you've actually written legislation uh, on this. What was the legislation that you wrote?
6: Well,
3: basically, uh, hello, Colin, first of all, um, Basically, we tried to just come up with a common-sense regulatory structure for something like Uber and all of the other TNC, as they're called, transportation network companies uh, that were operating in Connecticut. And what this bill basically did was to make sure that when you got into an Uber, um, the person who's driving you had, had got a background check. Uh, that they had the proper insurance in order to, if they got an accident, cover the liability of your injuries. Uh, and then finally, that they were ha- having a vehicle inspection so that if they were driving around uh, an unsafe car, somebody would have flagged that it was going to be a potential dangerous situation for somebody. And I think we came up with a very common sense approach that didn't stifle uh, the company. It basically just created a middle ground between the Wild West and an iron fist of regulations.
5: And you, I know you just as kind of an experiment, decided to try to register yourself as an Uber driver. What did you find out?
6: Well, that was sort of what really
3: made me want to go forward with this even more than I did when I started this process. I mean, I woke up on a Saturday morning and I thought, well, gee, let me see how hard it is or how easy it is to become an Uber driver. And it took me about 30 minutes online without ever talking to uh, an employee of the company or doing a job interview Uh, I intentionally entered information wrong on the application to see if it got picked up. And four days later, I got an email saying that I was good to go as an Uber driver. And uh, when you compare that to when I tried to apply to become a cab driver, uh, the difference is astounding. To be a cab driver, you need to have a fingerprint background check. You need to go for a job interview. You need to list the previous employers that you had, and they call those employers. Uh, It's a much longer process. Um, but that is, I think, what the public is expecting of us to be doing as government in terms of keeping people safe when they're out and about in their
5: daily life. None of which has, by the way, kept me from having several psychotic cab drivers, but that's a different story. Uh, Matthew Mitchell, is that too heavy a touch? Does he want too much?
1: Well, I do think that it probably risks um, tipping the balance too much in favor of of existing uh, firms. Um, You know, a good example is, Uh, let's take the insurance example, because it seems sort of um, just intuitive. Well, of course you'd want them to be insured. Um, The problem is there is, before Uber came around, there was two kinds of insurance. You know, there's the insurance that you and I would buy, and then there's commercial-grade insurance, which is much, much more expensive than regular insurance. And so what Uber and Lyft had done was to say that their own insurance covered people when they had them in the car but that if the app is um, off, you're on your own. And then there was this in-between where if the app is on but you have nobody in the car, well, then um, your own insurance should cover it. And this this became a problem because insurance companies were finding out sometimes that people were driving, um, uh, they got in an accident, and then uh, as soon as they found out that they were driving for Uber, they canceled their regular insurance. So a lot of people said, well, let's impose Commercial grade insurance, which is much much more expensive. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that that gives people an incentive. You know, Uber does not require people to, to drive a certain amount. That's one of the benefits of it is that you can, you can drive one hour, or you can drive, um, you know, 50, however much you want. And so it would then give people an incentive to sign up for to, to download the app, sign up for the service, and then just use it to get free insurance. Well, if if we wait eventually the market comes up with a solution. In this case, it did. Geico has come out with an insurance um, policy. It's available in Connecticut that is in between the uh, expensive commercial-grade insurance that regulations would require. Um, It's not as expensive as that, but it is more comprehensive than the regular insurance that you and I would buy. So a lot of these solutions come about if we just give them time and we don't lock in a particular technology or a particular
5: business model. And Sean, it, it strikes me that I mean some people listening to you might think, wow, this is sort of another way of government being intrusive in a pretty pervasive way. Like am I going to have to have a fingerprint background check to be an Uber driver? This is something I just want to do to pick up some some money in my spare time, and they're talking about fingerprinting me. That's a little spooky.
3: Well, you know, I think that, uh, look, you know, our job as government is to be responsive to changing dynamics in order to protect consumers. Um, And if you look back across the long history of government, um, there's been right ways to do that and wrong ways to do that. And I think what we're trying to do with this bill, which was a bipartisan effort last year um, and passed the House almost unanimously, never came up for a vote in the Senate, we'll try to do it again next year. Um, But when it comes to things like this, if I sort of told folks um, that I wanted to just do regulation on Uber, especially people that are in my generation. I'm a young guy. I use Uber a lot. My friends and family members love it. Um, And they sort of get defensive. And they say, well, geez, you know, I love Uber. I don't want it to go away. I don't either, Colin. Um, I just want to make sure that when somebody gets in an Uber, they are getting in a safe vehicle, they are insured that if that driver has been drinking and gets in a car accident, that they are going to be covered for the damages that are inflicted upon them. Uh, and that the driver who's driving you is not somebody who has a long history of grand theft auto and sexual assault and woke up one morning like I did and decided that Uber was a pretty easy job to get, and within 30 minutes he got the job. Uh, and so I think once you actually explain this to people and you go through um, the very, very sparse background checks that they currently do, And the fact that anybody can be a driver without having their vehicle inspected like you or I do when we get a car at the DMV, they grow concerned uh, and they expect us to do something about it that doesn't stifle growth. And I don't want to hurt Uber. Uh, I want them to continue to prosper. I want other companies like Uber to come about. Uh, I think it's great for our economy. I just think that we have a responsibility in government to make sure that 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 growth is not coming at the expense of protection of the public.
5: Sean Scanlon, some great points. And uh, Matthew Mitchell, you obviously have a world of expertise uh, on this. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Jeremiah Jeremiah Aoyang, I'm going to give you the last word in this segment. It has to be kind of a quick last word. But from your lofty perch, where you're kind of seeing the whole landscape here, how does the regulatory question look to you? Can these delicate little flowers of peer-to-peer commerce, can they absorb uh, a lot of government oversight?
6: They have their own strong lobbyist firms, and they hire the best lobbyists, so they are non-delicate flowers. In <laughs> fact, David, David Plough was part of the Uber team, These, and they, they're hiring the teams from Google, so they're not delicate at, by any means. They are robust. But the one thing that we need to remember is that these startups, it's in their best interest to self-regulate, and they are doing four things to try to self-regulate. One is having their own background checks, even if they weren't uh, required by the, any local or federal government. They also integrate social networks to find forms of trust like Facebook on Airbnb. And three, we didn't talk about this yet, but the two-way rating system is a very robust system to ensure that people are getting quality experiences uh, over a a period of time. And then, of course, the insurance products are the fail-safe. Now, with that, when those things fall apart or there's fail-safes, this is where we need to rely on our regulators to protect everybody who's involved.
5: All right, let's grab a quick break. We'll have more of Jeremiah Aoyang from Crowd Companies, and we should have somebody from Uber talking to us in just a second.
0: Mothers, don't let your kids grow up to do what the rest of us did. Get them out of the sharing economy. Turn them into robots before they're free.
2: I got so busy with my side jobs from Crammit that I had to hire somebody named Sarah from Announce For Me to do the credits. Thanks, Sarah. Go ahead. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and Kyone Wolf. Our interns are me and Nate Gagnon. Lydia Brown and Greg
6: Hill appeared in the introduction, and Greg Tweets at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by some kid we hired from TaskRabbit. For show pages, articles, or to get a ride to Boston from Worcester in the backseat of Jeremy Hobson's car, Jeremy, how about picking up all the Taco Bell wrappers? So messy. Visit WNPR.org. Tomorrow, the perils and delights of historical fiction. And now, back to Colin.
5: All right, so uh, it's time to get uh, Uber's perspective on this, so uh, let's talk to uh, Matthew Powers. He is a uh, director uh, of, of Uber here in Connecticut. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, as you listen to this conversation, and you were hearing uh, some of it, uh, Matthew Powers, um, uh, how does the regulatory issue look to you? In other words, is the kind of two-way regulation that Jeremiah is talking, a two-way evaluation system that Jeremiah is talking about? Some of the other measures that that Jeremiah was talking about is—is that enough? I mean, how? How? I don't know. How does Uber look at this whole question?
4: Sure. So, in fact, uh, Uber across the, the United States is, is regulated in 26 different states and in numerous other jurisdictions. Um, so we are very supportive of regulations. We believe that these regulations should be smart, uh, should really view Uber for what it is. It's a new type of innovative technology. Um, you know, we're not a taxi company. We're not a livery company. Uh, we're a tech, uh, transportation network
5: company. Um, and so what, what doesn't, in Connecticut, what would I have to do? What, if I want to be an Uber driver, what do I have to do? We try to make that process as simple as we
4: can for those who are looking for the, the uh, opportunity with Uber. So first and foremost, you would visit our website. you fill out an application. Uh, as part of that application, you would fill out a background cons- consent form where we would check your records versus uh, county, state, federal databases, as well as numerous watch lists. Uh, We would then ask you to upload your personal insurance information, your driver's license, and your vehicle registration. Once all of that information checks out uh, and we can confirm that you qualify to be an Uber partner, we try to get you on the road as soon as possible.
5: Um, And, and, I mean, anybody can sort of imagine that somebody might fall through the cracks uh, uh, of that process, but I would imagine, I mean, I I suppose part of the answer to this is that we take risks all the time. I get into a New York City cab. uh, I don't really know exactly (laughs) who's driving the cab, and I mean, you know, I I don't necessarily understand that process, and I certainly have had some New York City cab drivers I found quite alarming.
4: (laughs) Of course. So we believe very deeply that the way that we perform our safety checks are industry-leading. We believe strongly that they're best for our drivers and best for the, the patrons riding in the back seat.
5: Uh, all right. Well, listen, Matthew Bowers, thanks so much for spending some time here with us. And, um, you know, we've got, like, uh, we've got like all of 50 seconds left, uh, Jeremiah Aoyang, founder of Crowd Companies. What conversation will we be having uh, five years from now? We're just going to see more of the same or is it going to morph in a different way?
6: These on-demand access models will be everywhere. We'll be able to summon self-driving cars on-demand models. The drivers themselves will become uh, less relevant. In fact, Uber themselves are building self-driving cars. So the, the next topic, and I can't wait to come back, will be around the autonomous world when robots take over the crowd workers.
5: Well, I hope you get along with my robot replacement as well as we've gotten along, Jeremiah, because I've really enjo- enjoyed having you on the show today. You're here to stay. All right. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that reassurance. He's a futurist. He should know. I can't be replaced. Oh, that's a load off my shoulders. All right. So thanks especially to Josh Nalea. This is one of his creations. Thanks to Wolfie, too, and we'll be back tomorrow.
0: sisters and brothers let us share enough to show the world we care.
6: Let
2: us share enough to show the world we care. Hey, I really screwed up today's show. I am so sorry.
0: What are you talking about? That show was great.
2: Are you Steve Harvey?
0: No, I'm Josh Nellay. I produced today's show.
2: I'm sorry. I'm from sharetheblame.com, where there's enough blame to go around. I guess I can share the blame for this misunderstanding, too.